I'm here with Andrew Miller, author of a new novel called The Optimists. Andrew Miller is a British author, winner of James Tate Black Memorial Prize and the Impact Award out of Ireland. And his third novel, Oxygen, was shortlisted for the Booker. So perhaps we could start off by talking about the impact that, that these prizes have on authors, and you in particular. Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing is to win one, then forevermore your publishers can put on the front of the book, you know, prize-winning author. They're never very happy if they can't put that. There are now, in fact, so many literary prizes that the chances are if you keep writing and stay alive, you're going to win something, even if it's like, you know, 200 pounds and a trip to Cardiff. So, I mean, the, the impact the impact had was probably else just kind of straightforwardly financial. It's the richest prize for a single work of fiction in the world, and it's... Is that $250,000? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's £100,000, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's crazy money. I mean, it's, it's an American uh, outfit, a commercial outfit, who um, decided for various reasons that they wanted to fund a, a literary prize, and having the, having the moolah, they decided they would fund it to the tune that kind of nobody else... Uh, you know, there's not that kind of money in literature, really. It has to come in from somewhere else, you know. It's, uh, it was out of Ireland, though. Yeah, it, this has been one of their problems. It is done through Ireland, but it's actually it's an international prize, and it just is uh, presented in Ireland. There's not much more to it than that, and one can speculate exactly why it's done through Ireland. I mean, Ireland is obviously a great literary country. I mean, it, it's... There is probably no other country on earth quite so obsessed with the written word than Ireland. I mean, their national airline has writing all over the covers of their seats. I mean, this gives you a taste of what you're coming into. So it's an appropriate place to have a, a major literary award. But, I mean, it's partly, I think, uh, the Americans involved were um, Bostonians and, and Irish-American connections, and, and it was a do something with the old country. So... Um, but the judges are all international, the, and the beauty of it is they're nominated not by publishers, which is the normal way, but by libraries across the world. So I was nominated by a library in France and a library in Norway. And that, I think, actually makes it a very special prize. And it's actually a much more special prize than, than I think people realize. And uh, I hope that in time they'll get it across um, more effectively than they've been able to, what it is that they're doing there. So you know that a Canadian author, Alistair MacLeod, won it. It's a big deal, but, you know, it doesn't have anywhere near the cachet of, of a Booker or a Whitbread or... Uh... That's right. Well, the, the, the Booker... Uh, Booker's been going a lot longer, of course. It's been going 30-something years. And the Booker's been on television. It makes a big difference, as we said, you know. It's almost like the British Academy Award. That's right. I mean, they'd, cert they'd certainly like it to be that. I'm not sure. I haven't been to the Academy Awards, but um, I, I imagine they're a little more glamorous than... than although it is quite a, in its own way, in, in, a, in, a, in a literary way. Literary people are... I wouldn't say they're more sober than, than the film cousins, but they're... Uh, I don't know. They can't afford the kind of outfits. And it's, it's a little less... It's a little, a little more subdued, perhaps, than, 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 than an Academy Awards. Well, thing. perhaps a little bit uh, less yeah. superficial. Um, well, I wouldn't say that either, actually, but um, <laughs> it's... Uh, is an important prize, and, and I was very glad to be shortlisted, and I would be very happy to be shortlisted again should opportunity arise. But I do worry that it casts a terribly long shadow over publishing, certainly in Great Britain, so that even if you publish in February, people are immediately starting to speculate whether or not this is a contender for, you know, a shortlist, a long list, or whatever. 
And I'm not sure that should be the first reaction to a published book, frankly. You know, it might be among the reactions that you have to a published book, but I don't think it should be quite so uh, upfront. So it does worry me a little bit that one prize dominates in the way it does. I don't know whether it's the same in the States with, with um, you know, Pulitzer and, and Penn. Perhaps it is. Having said that, of course, people, you know, a lot of people who wouldn't normally take any very great interest in what's being published in the way of literary fiction, tune in and buy the books or buy some of the books, and, it's, and that's um, generally a good thing. This year, John Banville won it, and John Banville's a very serious writer. I'm, I'm a great admirer of his. So, you know, I think they, they make some good choices. Do you think they, they generally get it right with their, their selections? I mean, it varies from from uh, from jury to jury, but I don't know. They probably got a better record than I don't know the Nobel or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. but it's. Uh, what do you think about Harold Pinter winning just recently? Oh, I, I think you know, as they say in Ireland, good luck to him. I mean, it's he's been a very significant force in British theatre and world theatre, and uh, he's also a rather good poet, and um, I I think he's a rather interesting and likable man, and. Uh, I don't know who the competition was exactly, but I think it certainly won't disgrace the Nobel to have uh, you know, given it to Pinter by any means at all. I'd say I'm the kind of reader that I look for, for choice phrases, and also I think grand sort of insightful statements uh, about human nature and life. What kind of reader are you? Well, I think perhaps we're not uh, that different, I mean, because I like, I'm a stylist, I suppose, and I like that in, in what I read. I want to enjoy the kind of, that's the kind of sensual pleasure in reading a really great stylist. And I think probably great style comes with something else. It isn't simply a sort of ballet. So it contains something else, something that is that is not simply aesthetic, um, something richer. I suppose you always want a book to talk to you. You want a book to speak to your condition in some way. And those are the books you value. Um, those are the ones you um, make sure are always to hand on your uh, on your little library shelf and uh, that make up the heart of your library. Maybe we could get into yeah. the heart of your library. The heart of my library. I mean, there's probably, probably two phases that are really crucial. The childhood reading, straightforward childhood reading, that where you, your first time you're probably reading on your own and, and, and you're taking in sort of your first good childhood authors and, and, uh, and they obviously lay down one kind of foundation uh, for you. Then I think there's that kind of intense teenage reading, maybe from 16 to 20, uh, thereabouts, which if you are a reader and maybe by that time many have fallen by the wayside and they're not going to do this. Especially this generation with all the other distractions. I guess that's right. It's hard to know what... I mean, obviously, having books around at home and, and, and things and, and having parents who read must be hugely influential. Maybe they will discover a, a reading chromosome, a reading gene. And, and Anyway, some kids just go on and then they have this intense reading about sort of 16 to 20. And for me, slightly uh, dictated by the s school curriculum. But, I mean, it was... Um, Thomas Hardy, D.H. Lawrence in particular, those are two who uh, had an enormous impact on me at that age and can be read very well at that age. Lawrence, perhaps particularly, has a very strong appeal to a certain kind of young man or woman. Kind of that real sexual energy, and I guess that's sort of floating around in that uh, time of life. Yes. 
he's a sort of revolutionary figure, I think. I think he's a terrifically important figure. I mean, I, I, I've never lost my enthusiasm for him. He fell out of favor. I think the feminists did a good job on him, and he slightly went into the dust. And he's easy to... Um, he's not someone who shouldn't be criticized, but he's quite an easy target. I mean, there are things in his work that you can uh, lampoon quite simply, and rhetorical sort of flourishes. And, well, he's very influenced with the, by the Bible. Joyce is, an, is an, another one. I mean, and in Lawrence, it gets out of control sometimes. But he's very important. He's very open, and he's extremely funny. He, I think, had more to say about the condition of men and women, and in the broadest possible sense, the whole sort of politics of the modern world, than than um, hard pushed to think of another... British 20th century writer who uh, can match him in that way. A wonderful writer about children, wonderful writer about animals. And, and about certainly about nature and yeah. uh, sunsets. And he knew nature, of course, I mean, he, in the way Hardy did. And these guys, they knew their stuff. Shakespeare has to be the premier stylist. Pretty well every single line is uh, it's unmatched. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, of course, to see it performed and to, and actually even better to take part in the, in, in, in the performances. You know, they don't have to be great performances. Yeah, I don't know that I agree with that, though. I, I find that you, you, can, you can watch the play and it's wonderful and the acting is sort of forefront, but sitting down with the play mm. and typically takes the first act, I think, just for me at least, to get into it. And then it becomes an incredible page-turner. Pretty well every play that I've read, I find. Yeah, become, and, but the, the fact that I can see the line on the page and go back to them and just sit there and revel in them. To me, it is much more entertaining, and it takes about the same amount of time. You can read it in about three hours, and you watch it in three hours. If I had a choice, I'd go with the reading. Yes, I mean, I think it is the poetry of the language in the end, but I just think in terms of getting, I'm thinking still about school kids. I think the, the shock of a school kid of being confronted, page one, scene one, act one, uh, you know, of, of Hamlet or whatever, and, and it just, a door shuts, you know, and, and I think one way to keep that door open a little bit longer is to see that this is, um, there's a drama to this and that, uh, you know. Well, also to get famous movie actors like Mel Gibson to do Hamlet. Yeah, I didn't see Mel Gibson as Hamlet. I'm not by any means the greatest fan Mel Gibson has. So... I wouldn't have gone to see that, but I, I certainly, I mean, when I was uh, a young boy, they took us to see uh, Laurence Olivier and Henry V, for example. I mean, that, I mean that's a terrific film. It was quite an old film then, of course, I have to say. And Kenneth Branagh's version was yeah. pretty good, too. I think he did do a good job, although whether you would, you know, would you have followed him into the breach? I don't know. He has a light touch. He's a good, he's a good comedian, good in the, in, in, in the more intimate scenes. I don't think I would have followed him through the breach. I didn't think his uh, Crispin <laughs> speech was... Oh, I thought it was rousing. Oh, well, he's got one of us. That's all right, then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's right. And what am I going to do? I'm going to be proud when I get back, and you're just going to be regretting that you never did take part in it. Well, you're assuming you're going to get back, actually. <laughs> well, what was it, 500 to 1 or something, the odds? Yeah, it is. It's early stuff, and, and, and there have been uh, some good productions of that kind. I mean, there did some lots of lovely Romeo and Juliet, and that, of course, is... A, is if you were a teacher and you had a room full of 15-year-olds, is the one, too, because that's what she is. She, Juliet is 15, I think, is she? Yeah. if that. I've even heard younger, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Get, get into the book, The the Optimists, a bit. You remember talking about stylists and stylists. There's one line that was early, came early, and it was about May, that May was already more summer than spring. I just love that. <laughs> Thank you. You know, bless you. We, 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 we write for a reader who actually might... 
take pleasure in a line like that. I am perhaps in some ways a, f- a frustrated poet. Well, you can you can combine them, though. I mean, that's why I love J.M. Coetzee so much. His novels are poetry, and I think this is what I'm finding in yours. Well, J.M. Coetzee is a good name to, to pull out. and Of course, you're right. It's not as if prose and fiction and poetry are, are somehow separated by a you know, wide uh, river. They're, they're not. And, and uh, it was uh, what, Ezra Pound who said that... Uh, admonished the poets of his time, said, you know, you make sure you should write your poetry with at least as much care as, as these guys write their prose. In fact, the one time I did actually write a lot of poetry was when I stopped writing prose for a time. I was in the middle of my first book, or no, further on, and, and uh, Ingenious Pain, and just stopped it because I didn't know how to go on with it. And then I had a kind of a season of poetry. <laughs> so I do have this slightly frustrating sense that if I stopped writing novels completely, maybe I would start to write poems again. And I do rather hanker after that. Maybe I'm going to try and be like a, like a Thomas Hardy and, and write my poems in old age. Well, yeah, but of course Hardy uh, was, was disgusted with the way the critics treated him, so he, uh, so he basically said, forget it. I'm not, you don't like it? I'm not doing it anymore. But his poems are highly regarded, aren't they? They are. I mean, and actually, uh, they made the slight mistake, I think, at, at, at when I was a, a schoolboy, of trying to sort of give us the poems with the books, and I think the, the poetry is much more difficult. I didn't get on with Hardy's poetry until much, much later. And now, I mean, it's, a tr- it's terrifically sad. I mean, it's really heartbreaking stuff, it's, uh, and it's riddled with guilt. Well, yeah, Jude the Obscure, I mean, ends with she kills the kids, doesn't she? Yes, well, the, the kids in Judith's school hang themselves. That's right, to sort of get out the way. I mean, you don't, yes, you don't want to find yourself a character in a Hardy novel, basically, because it's, it's not, it doesn't look good. I mean, it's, it's like being with uh, Kenneth Branagh in the war in France. Oh, yes, exactly, yeah, yes. <laughs> You're not going to come home. <laughs> That's right, you're not. Yeah. So I, d- I want to t- uh, touch on one more line. I just love this line, too. It's, uh, but he's, he finds himself one of the kinds of people that go to movie matinees, during, during the afternoon, of course, there's one line here where he, uh, he swings the doors of the cinema open and they, they scraped the movie from his mind like bones from a plate. Ugh. That's right, that's right. It was that kind of film. But to me, this is what I want from what I read and it's what I try and write. I want language to work hard. I want the images to be uh, vivid. And this is why I rewrite as much as I do because it takes me a long time to get to the point where... Once in a while, something just drops in your, into the palm of your hand, and that's great. A lot of the time, you've got to stay with it. You've got to keep renewing your attention, your focus on the moment, on the character, on the scene. And they're just that, that's what takes the time, just renewing your attention all, all the time. I've heard it described as imploding the moment or the emotion, or you just keep going into it. I think that's probably a good term to use. And, and then eventually it is released to you. The, the necessary words are there for you eventually, but it's, uh, you have to wait a long time sometimes for, for that to be the case. I'd say once in a while it's, it's just uh, given to you, but there's a kind of, uh, I don't know, one's, one's kind of always thrown back on all sorts of metaphors, trying to describe the, the, the process. Of, I mean, one way I, I which doesn't involve implosions or explosions, I sometimes think is, you know, you've got to leave the tap running a lot longer than you think before the water's cold and clear enough to drink. <laughs> you know, you know, you know. Is that a good yeah. Have you put that into a novel? 
No. <laughs> well, you should. I have a bit of problem with his name. This is, again, the optimists. Clem Glass. I didn't like Clem. I kept thinking of Clem Cadiddlehopper, a character that Red Skelton, the American comedian, came up with. I was interested in Glass. Because it's called The Optimist, I started thinking about a full glass and an empty glass. And also Philip Glass. So what went into the thinking about this guy's name? Probably less than that. I mean, I think with, with names, you just... Well, you know if it's wrong. Is Clem as in Clement, as in Atley, as in his mother was a Fabian. It is an odd name. You don't find it much in Britain, although there's no association with a comedy character of the sort. Uh, you just mentioned I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that. I mean, that's one of the problems with names, that they do have associations, and you don't know them all, <laughs> and then you find out later, oh, or it gets to, in translation, they tell you, um, no, you can't use that, because in, who was that telling me, uh, Jonathan Coe telling me, but he had a character whose name in Romanian meant testicles, and he couldn't understand why, when he went with the British Council to Romania, everybody was guffawing into their handkerchiefs, and, and then, you know, he says, that's just it, he says, I mean, that's, that's what you're stuck with. Gives him a lovely literary anecdote there, though. I think you deal with the associations, you know, locally, in your own language, in your own culture, and then leave the rest to... Uh, <laughs> Don't want to offend fundamentalists, though. Uh, Islamic fundamentalists? Uh, well, yes, I'm, I don't think I'm likely to, but I'm, uh, I certainly hope I wouldn't... Uh, well, you know, obviously, unintentionally. The character, then, in The Optimists, he, he witnesses some atrocity at a, a church or a cathedral, and uh, one thing I thought was interesting is the way he just put N and then a line after it to talk about the uh, place where the church was, and I found that quite old-fashioned. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite funny because it is a bit old-fashioned, and I quite liked it for that. The end probably is Nairobuye, which is a place in Rwanda. But because I didn't want to write about Rwanda, I didn't want to put Nairobuye down, or alternatively make up another name that I thought was kind of vaguely Central African. You, you probably heard about Vietnam veterans that one day they're bombing villages, killing children. The next day... They're dumped onto the streets of San Diego. This is how I felt with Clem. Yes, I mean, to a lesser extent, I suppose, but certainly... I mean, I was kind of interested in the idea of, of how much can you see with impunity. Impunity meaning uh, the freedom from psychological consequences? Yes, principally, yes, without... Um, we now live... In um, although, in fact, of course, news coverage, etc., is censored to not show us perhaps the worst. I mean, in some countries, it's more censored than others. I mean, I remember when I lived in Spain, they used to show much more, oddly enough. I don't know quite why that would be, but they did, uh, than, than I would, would have seen in Britain, for example, than I suspect you would see in Canada. But there is still this idea that we should see, and people are, people want to see, people going past a car wreck on the road. Everybody will slow down a bit and try and see. And that's, I guess, not a very attractive part of our nature, but it is absolutely part of our nature. Curiosity is one of our fundamental sort of survival strategies. Well, it's also the curiosity about death. Yes, it is. Absolutely, which in a sense is not an evolutionary strategy as such. So Clem and Silverman, the other journalist, have on this occasion, I think, seen more than they can readily digest and, and find themselves in, in difficulty. 
One of the things I found interesting about Clem was that he's experiencing this craving for skin and touch. And I think many men could relate to this craving and yearning for touch and, and the fact that it's probably too important or it, it overwhelms us at times. And uh, wouldn't it be great to live without that want? Well, yes, perhaps, but we, we, we shan't. I mean, anybody who uh, has a, a young child knows how much, you know, they need the comfort of just the straightforward comfort of being picked up and held, you know. And in a sense, that just continues. I mean, we just continue with that. Well, of course, uh, perhaps these poor fellows that have this craving didn't get enough of that when they were kids, and they're trying to replace it. Well, there's much uh, debate on such things, which doesn't come into the optimists at all, but it's certainly a book I read before I, uh, before my child was born. It's called The Continuity Concept, or The Continuum Concept, which has uh, been around a long time now, which makes exactly the point you make, which is that children must be carried, and they must be carried uh, until they don't, in a sense, need it anymore. They must have enough contact not to remain for the rest of their lives anxious at the absence of it and, and hungry for it. Well, so many, so many of us are, though. Yeah, that's right. And certainly in a, in a situation like Clem's, it's one of the obvious responses to want to have that intimacy. He slightly confuses it with a sexual intimacy. Whenever there's touch, there's some element of, uh, of the sexual, perhaps, but uh, particularly you know, between a man and a woman. But what he really wants is, is comfort. And I, I don't know whether you've read to the point where he goes to the prostitute uh, yeah. in London. And actually, because what he wants from her really is, is for her just to sort of hold him, which is, of course, something that she's a service she's not prepared to. No, she wants to know what's wrong with him. Yeah, she's a kid. I mean, <laughs> herself, anyway. I mean, she's, 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 uh, it is genuinely intimate to do that, to, to hold somebody like that. And, and she's, not, uh, she's not prepared to do it or able to do it. She's not... Uh, we're, we're in Rwanda, and uh, there's buckets of, of paint being thrown out the window by these <laughs> drug abusers. I just love the way you described how the, the, the top of the paints just got a bit thicker. I could just feel that. And one of the things that I liked was, here we are, he's back in London, and I had that same idea of, here, you are talking about, because Clem is approached by a poor Spanish girl and, mm -hmm. and a few others, and it seems to me there is this sort of layer in our society where everything is fine and watertight, but underneath there's the, did you, uh, did you think about that, or is that me being a reader again. Or? That's you being a very good reader, I think. And it's inter always interesting, the connections and, and, the, and the sort of cross-connections that people make when they read carefully. The paint, I mean, the, I mean, that's, in a sense, quite straightforward. I lived next to a house, a crack den, basically, and when they were high as kites, I mean, they were kind of really just... Uh, desperate characters, but there was a sort of mad exuberance to them. I mean, I presume they sort of drug-fueled, and this exuberance was sort of kind of detaining in a way, and they would throw tins of paint out the window, <laughs> you know, which would sort of um, settle on the pavement, and then various people, including a member the dog that walked through it and left these little dog prints, you know, blue dog prints all the way up the street. So, I mean, but, but it's interesting that you made the, the idea of sort of beneath a kind of a crust, uh, you know, a mess of I mean, London is a, is a like any big city, a place where where you know there's there's always X percent of the population who are in chronic or acute difficulty. 
Yeah, I think it's it's obviously like that in many big cities. Although they seem to have scraped them off the streets in New York and dumped them somewhere. But just one final question. Yesterday uh, I attended the uh, interview with Zadie Smith and wanted to provoke things a bit. So I, I asked her, well, first of all, I complimented her on her looks, which I think probably upset a whole bunch of people, first off. My question simply was, you're a very attractive woman. As a result, if you were frumpy, you perhaps wouldn't have had all these interesting experiences in your life to pull from to draw your novels. Her response was, I used to be 80 pounds heavier. I was frumpy for a good part of my life, and I don't like talking about these kind of questions. When I saw your picture on on the cover of your book, I was reminded of uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. So I'm wondering if you might be able to <laughs> comment on whether or not your looks have, uh, you know, if you, if you were different looking, do you think you would have had different experiences in your life and, and as a result uh, not being able to draw on them as a novelist? I used to be 80 pounds heavier. Yeah, no, I... Actually, I mean, I would love to be able to change my body shape every and the way I look and everything every every sort of few months. I mean, I think it would be much, much more interesting. I'm rather weary of this one now. It's been a good enough one, but it's. I'd like to be six foot seven. I'd like to be uh, homunculus. I'd like to be, you know, be fun to be a woman for a while. You know, I, mean, I think it would be so much better to uh, be able to do that to, because we are, you know, a lot of, yeah, a lot of life, I suppose, is conditioned in some way, the way the world responds to you. you. You then experience things that you wouldn't otherwise experience. Well, that's right. I mean, short of living another life, we can't... It's one of these kind of unbearable lightness of being with things. I mean, you know, we, we don't know what it might have been otherwise. You know? So, I live with this one and... And, and Daniel Day lewis of course, was in that movie. That's true. Say so we need a little uh, closing of the circle. Sorry, I interrupted though. No, I, I was just saying that uh, I work with, with, with what I have. I mean, I think, I think a lot of the time writers want to disappear into the wallpaper, really. I mean, not entirely, sort of, in terms of, you know, sort of an eavesdrop, but it's obviously it's something to do with that. But I think it's a curious thing that we go to festivals and we do things like this and we have photographs on. I mean, I sometimes actually wonder if it would be much better not to have a photograph of any kind. Well, I think if you're attractive, you're going to get more readers. Well, there's a thought. That's too many what my publishers uh, like to think, although there have been uh, <laughs> many very successful... Um, ugly, ugly authors? Yeah, I mean, I'd, let's, pick, let's, let's think of the... Well, if we shouldn't. A dead one. We need to think yeah, of a dead, dead ugly yeah, author. Dead, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Could you recommend a few books that might help enrich the lives of, of our readers in a way that the, uh, these books may have enriched your life? And perhaps even movies. Perhaps you could mention a couple movies. Okay, let's start with a movie. A Japanese movie I've been watching recently. It's called Tokyo Story. It's by a director called Ozu, O-Z-U. It's made in the 50s, and uh, he was famous for doing all his shots at kind of kneeling level. <laughs> so uh, it's a very, very beautiful film, and video libraries actually, uh, many of them do have it. So should you um, uh, look around that section of the library, um, check it out. Books, well, let's see, this is, again, just picking things out, a book that has, uh, that seems to be a real sort of, in a sense, a writer's book, insofar as I know a number of writers who kind of claim it as an influence or as, as a special book in some way, uh, Lampedusa's, Giuseppe Lampedusa's The Leopard, in Leopardi, which actually was made into quite a good film, with Burt Lancaster as the prince, oddly enough. Is that possible? No, not Burt Lancaster. 
Bert Man of Alcatraz. Yeah, Bert. Uh, that's Bert Lancaster. Bert Lancaster. Okay, yeah. well, there we go. Anyway, don't worry about the film too much. But, uh, the the book. It's one that influenced you too, I assume. Absolutely, well, it's got all this. It's you know, I, I like a book to, to have a strong visual element, but the writing to be in some way physical, sensual. I guess to have sensual property, and that book uh, is is a wonderful example of that kind of writing. I'm reminded of a passage in uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Hundred Years of Solitude that describes a sexual encounter in a way that's just incredibly powerful. Are you uh, a fan of him? I'm a, I haven't read Marquez for a long time, but I went through a phase of, of reading him one after the other. I mean, I think as a lot of us did. And yes, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. Uh, who has to pick up? I'll tell you someone I've been reading uh, just recently on, on flights around Canada. That's Italo Calvino, another writer's writer, actually. And there are things in, by Calvino I find very difficult to read. He got very dry in his sort of later years, very kind of, very sort of abstract manner, which I don't like particularly in writing. But the Our Ancestors trilogy... And, Three novellas, each of them a complete delight. They're quite, they're sort of fairy tales of a sort, but they just have all the kind of qualities of, of, of storytelling that, I mean, they remind you of, of the best stories you knew, you heard as a child, the ones that completely enthralled you, but also these can be read and enjoyed as, as, a, as an adult, and they're funny and rich, and, and they stay with you for forever, it seems. So, Calvino, yeah, a terrific favorite of mine. And again, because I've been doing a slightly Japanese thing recently, someone who I think comes over well in translation, and not all the Japanese writers do, and that's uh, Junichiro Tanazaki, or Tanazaki Junichiro, if you want to do it in the Japanese way. His books, in particular, maybe some prefer Nettles, which is a novella-sized uh, book. But he, perhaps of, of the kind of the classic 20th century Japanese novelists, is the one who I think is the best novelist and who comes over best in translation. There were some, ra- some pretty random Wonderful. stuff there. Thank you for this uh, delightful conversation. Uh, Andrew Miller is the author of uh, a new book called The Optimists, and uh, from what I've read, I can only highly recommend it. Thanks again. Thank you very much.